Well, due to cinemas being closed and an obvious lack of new releases, our resident film reviewer Fergal Casey will be casting an eye on the directors of cinema who've inspired and influenced their industry and the people who've watched their films. This month's focus is on John Huston, our first director of cinema in 2021. Good morning, Fergal, and Happy New Year. Good morning, Patrick. Happy New Year to you. John Huston. Indeed. A man who directed 47 films, Maltese Falcon, Treasure of Sierra Madre, The African Queen, The Man Who Would Be King. And during that 46-year career, Houston receives 15 Oscar nominations, wins twice, and directs both his father, Walter Houston, and his daughter, Angelica Houston, to Oscar wins in different films. Quite an extraordinary figure. He is something of a titan of 20th century cinema. What is it about Houston that inspires and influences? I would say that John Houston is responsible, along with Orson Welles perhaps, for the, the cult of the, the debut that is perfect, the fully formed classic, first time out. Being? A coup, as Delacroix would say. And that classic was... 80 years old this year, it's the Maltese Falcon. So in 1941, you had Orson Welles making Citizen Kane, and you had John Huston making the Maltese Falcon, both first-time directors. And I think that sort of set this bar that from then on, it's like, whoa, look at those amazing first films. Everyone's first film should be amazing if they're going to be an amazing director. You're like, oh, well, actually, no, there's a lot of, mm, there's a lot of work that goes in there first. In the case of Houston, he'd almost had kind of two careers in Hollywood by the time he got around to actually directing the Maltese Falcon, even though he was still quite young when he did it. So the advent of talkies was wonderful for Houston because that got him a chance. You know, he'd been selling, actually, and this is something I hadn't known before now, he had been encouraged as a writer when H.L. Mencken bought two of his stories at the American Mercury. And from that point on, Houston went, perhaps I can do this writing business because up to that point, he'd been doing a lot of painting. And so after that, he went to move to Hollywood when they started the talkies because that was right up his street. And then there was an incident with a car which may or may not have had Clark Gable behind it. And Houston fled to France for a few years and then came back for his second coming at Hollywood where he wrote for Howard Hawks. He wrote for William Wyler, for Raoul Walsh. And in the last one, he was told, you know, he wanted to direct. And Jack Warner said, well, if you can write a hit screenplay, I'll let you direct whatever you want. So he wrote High Sierra for Raoul Walsh, which was a hit, as uh, expected, by Houston at least. Starred Humphrey Bogart and uh, got him to clout to make the Maltese Falcon. So he didn't really come out of nowhere. And it's interesting that he is really sort of an archetypal writer-director in that he... You know, he had made some money in living writing even before he went to write for the, the movies in Hollywood. He'd been doing plays and short stories. But also, as a, a trained artist, when he sat down to think about the Maltese Falcon, he naturally taught in lots of images. So he had a dense script, but at the same time, a stack of storyboards so that every scene was practically already shot before he started. And yet, for all of that, George Raft, very famous actor during that time rejected the film. He didn't want to play the part that went on to go to Humphrey Bogart. 
due to the fact that he felt that Houston was inexperienced. Yes. All I can say is George Raft made some daft choices along the way in his career. You mentioned the fact that John Houston was a painter. Is there a correlation between John Houston director and John Houston painter? Is that the added extra that makes this film a masterpiece? Oh, I think one of the things that's interesting is it's it's very similar to the way Alfred Hitchcock came from a background in advertising where he was, you know, draftsman. He would mock up sketches and the visuals of advertising. And so Hitchcock would always also have tremendously detailed storyboards to the point where, for the, was it, the 1942 film, Saboteur, the fellow playing the villain came over to Hitchcock one day and asked, what's that? And Hitchcock goes, oh, that's where you, that's, do you want to see how you die? And just <laughs> flipped through all these sketches. And I was like, oh, like the end of the film was coming to life in front of him, like someone flipping a comic book because Hitchcock had already... He'd already drawn it. He'd already visualized it. Now just putting it on film was the, the final bit in the enterprise. So both Hitchcock and Houston, the way they so extensively storyboarded, they didn't really find any film in the editing process. They found it in their minds first, and then they just committed it to film. So when it gets to the editor, he's more or less just going, hmm, so this fits here, and I see the seven-minute uh, tracking shot fits to here, fits to here, fits to here. Not really much for me to do here, is there? Nope, just assemble it. John Huston was a very methodical director, and certainly The Maltese Falcon was a film made in a very methodical manner. Yes, all, all very, very planned out, so that it came in, you know, on time, just under budget, and apparently it was like Clint Eastwood's, you know, uh, very efficient production, that they, they all had time to knock off and go for drinks afterwards in the evening, rather than being there until the wee small hours. Now, I haven't read the original novel. Does Houston veer away from it? Does he keep very much to the original source material? Sadly, I haven't read the original novel either, despite always meaning to. But I gather that he decides to stick more closely to it than previous attempts, because this was attempt number three at the basic text, as the Hollywood people would call the novel. The ba- sorry, not the basic, the basic material. I haven't read the basic material, which means I haven't read the novel. So the second attempt to film it, uh, they tried to introduce light comedy elements, if you can credit that. And Houston taught, no, we, we, there should be no light comedy in this. This is not a light comedy story. You know, this is Dashiell Hammett really was a private detective, and he's written Sam Spade as being sort of the, uh, the platonic, platonic ideal of what all the guys in the Pinkerton Agency wished that they were like. You know, like, oh, I wish I was that hard-bitten. I wish I had all those witty comebacks. I wish I was that clever and conniving. Now, Fergal, as we've talked over the years about great film directors, and behind every great film director is a great cinematographer. So who is John Huston working with on The Maltese Falcon? Arthur Edison, who did the cinematography for Casablanca the next year, and a decade earlier had done Frankenstein, and was one of the three people who founded the American Society of Cinematography. So this was a man who knew what he was doing. I'm guessing this was very much the coming together of two minds. Yeah, I mean, with the level of preparation that Houston put in, like you go to Edison and say, this is what I want to do, and Edison just looks and goes, oh, right, well, you really know what you want to do, so I can, you know, I can do that. Let's see, I'll just put this here and put that there. So the seven-minute tracking shot, which you might not even notice is happening, is when uh, Humphrey Bogart goes to meet Sidney Greenseed, who's playing Casper Gutman, a.k.a. the fat man, this wildly intimidating, over-the-top figure. And the fat man is going to knock out Humphrey 
But first off, he has to tell them about the Maltese Falcon to let the, the, the drug take effect. And so he, he draws out the story in a fantastic manner. And you may not notice, it's, it's kind of subtle in the way that a Spielberg can throw, sometimes throw in a very long shot without you really noticing, hey, that was all one thing, there was no cut. And that involved, you know, the camera moving here, camera moving there, boom going up, boom going down. Very technically complicated for something you might not notice. I think that's a kind of a, a challenge that Edison probably appreciated. His casting is marvellous, isn't it? Peter Laurie, Sidney Greenstreet, Humphrey Bogart. And person that keeps getting mentioned on this show for no good reason at all, Ward Bond. Yes. Well, Ward Bond was one of those actors, is one of those actors that has been long forgotten. But if you watch any film prior to 1960, he will appear in it. He must have made about a thousand films in his career. It's almost like one of those things of, okay, I've got everything, I've got my screenplay, I've got my this, I've got my that. Oh, hell, Ward Bond, I forgot you, get in here for a scene, dear. I almost missed something on the checklist. No Ward Bond cameo. He was a marvellous actor. He's a great little character actor. Correct, correct. So, so in this one, there's, there's two police officers who are continually on Sam Spade's case about what the hell is going on? Who shot your partner? Who shot the guy who probably shot your partner? Why is you know why are ships blowing up in the harbour? Why are people running around shouting about falcons? What is going on? And Sam Spade is continually stringing him along until he tries to figure out the mystery himself. And so in the good cop, bad cop uh, combo, Ward Bond is a good cop saying, be reasonable, Sam, just tell us what we want to know. But of course, up against them is a rose gallery of villains and untrustworthy people. Sidney Greenstreet, Mary Astor, Peter Lorre, and Alicia Cook Jr. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's an embarrassment of riches, you know, so much villainy from Sidney Greenstreet, you know, rotund, uh, avuncular villain to Peter Lorre's very uh, oily, twisty, nervous Joel Cairo to uh, the totally uh, kind of shark, dead-eyed look of Alicia Cook Jr. as Wilmer, the gunslinger that uh, is going around protecting the fat man. And then you have Mary Astor as one of the archetypal film noir femme fatales, Bridget O'Shaughnessy, perhaps not her real name. Can you trust this woman for Did you control her? Perhaps not. Does Sam Spade, in fact, love her? Perhaps, perhaps not. Does she love him? Perhaps, perhaps not. It's just, it's just a joy watching all of these actors clash against each other. Yes, it is. And certainly he was able to get the best out of his actors, wasn't he? As he said, possibly because he, he'd spent a lot of time watching his own father rehearse on Broadway and off-Broadway plays, so he kind of had a feel for the mechanics of how it all worked. In 1941, there was a review that said it was a beautifully made production. The quote goes on to say, John Huston's direction of his own screenplay is as brilliant as any of the jewels which are alleged to encrust the falcon whose possession is the crux of the story. Oh, nicely put. People of that time must have loved Huston's film. And see, the thing was, it was really just a favour. It was Jack Warner saying, fine, I'll let you direct because I like your screenplays and I want to have more of them coming my way. But I, I don't really want you to become a great director, especially not if you go to a rival studio. So he gave him a B-movie budget and just sort of, here's just a film. And it just exploded into not being a B-movie, but it became an A-movie by dint of its own quality. So it's kind of the little film that could. 
very finely, Fergal, in a sentence, what is it about this film, The Maltese Falcon, that we really get an essence of John Huston, director? It's the combination of the uh, adherence to the written word, because as a writer-director, he did a lot of adaptations, mostly, but also because he's a visual artist. You know, he's a, he's a way of stripping out the essentials and making them visually interesting when he turns a novel into a film. And I don't know. I don't know if this is something we might return to, the idea of cynicism and romanticism. I mean, The Maltese Falcon is a terrifically hard-edged movie. I mean, there is romantic overtones throughout it, but then, you know, by the end, we get to, to Bogey being absolutely cold-hearted, saying, you know, it doesn't matter what I feel, you know, someone has to go down for this. Someone, I won't play the sap for you. And just makes up a, you know, like the Gilmore Girls, you know, 60 years later, he makes up a pros and cons list of, you know, what is good and what is bad on uh, sending someone to the gallows and whether to do it or not. And he's like, ooh, now there's a, you know, cynicism has obliterated romanticism at this point. Well, we will be returning to John Huston at the end of the month. And what will the film be? I believe we're going to look at another totem of 1940 cinema, The Treasure of the Sierra Madra. Marvellous. I cannot wait because that is one of my favourite films of all time. I remember watching it when I was probably 15 or 16 and just being in awe of it as a piece of filmmaking. So I'm very much looking forward to that conversation. Well, Fergal, thank you very much for your contribution this morning. Good morning, Patrick.